0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the AABIP Podcast. This is Udud Chada, your host from Mount Sinai in New York City. Today, I am honored to be in the presence of an expert who has very unique qualification. Laura Fry is not only trained in IP, but she's also trained in lung transplant. And uh, I could think of no better guest to discuss airway complications in lung transplant patients, specifically from an IP perspective. Laura, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you for inviting me to speak on this as well.
0: And do you have any relevant conflicts of interest with regards to this topic?
1: I have no conflicts uh, related to management of transplant complications.
0: Perfect. So let's get started then. And, uh, you know, I've been reading about uh, the incidence of airway or asthmatic complications in patients with lung transplant. And it seems like the incidence is anywhere between 1.6 and 64%, but the larger studies say it's 18%. What's the incidence? So what are they looking at? I mean, there's do the sixty-four percent studies include like a small amount of granulation tissue, and the one point six only severe stenosis? So, how often can we expect airway complications, and what risk factors are there for it?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the challenges with the sort of data that you are citing is that prior to twenty eighteen, there wasn't really a consensus definition of what an airway complication was in the transplant community. Um, that was actually published in twenty eighteen um, through a group of transplant pulmonologists and surgeons through ISHLT. Before that, if you look at that number that's like 1.8%, that is patients with massive dehiscence that require surgical repair. The large number, that 64% is actually a very sensitive definition that was used at one center. And that was any patient who on that first bronchoscopy had ischemia reperfusion injury where they had evidence of sort of necrosis in the airway. Um, And so I think if we actually look at what the number is and a usual practice um, with skilled surgeons, you might actually be on a surveillance bronchoscopy seeing an airway complication probably closer to that 18%. And that's if you look at all airway complications over time. This
0: 18% would probably include those that you either need to do something on or something you need to survey, right?
1: Yeah. So I have a lot of patients that I currently do surveillance on for sort of early ischemia reperfusion injury and necrosis. And so I'm going in every couple of weeks just to ensure that things are continuing to heal well. So that's like the one group of patients that you may be doing surveillance on. The other is the uh, the other sort of entity would be patients who have a stenosis. And so it's a stenosis. It's not flow limiting. It's not severe. Maybe you intervene, maybe you don't. But if you don't, then you need to follow that up with a short interval bronchoscopy. Because unfortunately, as you know from your experience with these patients, imaging isn't the perfect thing, and there are so many factors that can affect spirometry, we can't really trend that either. Um, There are things that clue us in to changes, but really bronchoscopy is going to remain our gold standard.
0: And are there any patients we can suspect this in or patients who are at risk to develop every complications?
1: So if you look at what has been found to correspond to early airway complications. So the patients who have it typically in the first three months, first six months, those are patients who, if you look at their post-op course, they have more primary graft dysfunction um, that may be related to donor or recipient issues um, or patients who have early acute cellular rejection. And both of those things sort of tell us about the vascular supply to the anastomosis. So ACR, um, our acute cellular rejection is essentially related to vasculopathy. So if those changes are happening in the parenchyma, we can imagine we're still seeing those same changes at the anastomosis. And so those patients are ones who warrant a little closer eye.
0: Mm-hmm. And what are these early complications that we can see?
1: So you can see um, sort of that necrosis, and dehiscence, and so dehiscence is the thing that we're obviously watching very closely for, um, and that could be a partial or a complete dehiscence. And so, if you see in a transplant patient that they have a new pneumothorax, or there's somebody who hasn't had an air leak in their chest tube post-op but now has a new air leak, we need to be doing a procedure to take a look at that suture line and make sure that it's still intact. So,
0: so the spectrum of uh, airway necrosis, I guess, can extend from a little bit of mucosal sloughing or ulceration all the way to dehiscence, right?
1: Correct. And, and so then if you look at that definition that was also published back in 2018, it not only includes the suture line, but it also includes extension into sort of the bronchus intermedius into the lobar and segmental airways. And so if you have somebody who has really significant necrosis all the way down to the lobar and segmental levels, that person is not only at risk of dehiscence, but an incredibly high risk of developing stenosis later on.
0: And how would you manage uh, somebody who does not have dehiscence yet, but just has some sort of uh, mucosal sloughing or necrosis, just surveillance, right?
1: Just, I mean, it's surveillance. And then because I wear both hats, and so I have the transplant hat and the IP hat, on the IP side, I'm going to very much, it's going to be surveillance and um, essentially toilet Bronx. So I'm going in, cleaning up the airways, making sure that everything is still intact. And then on the transplant side, I am looking at their airway clearance techniques, um, because when we do transplant, we obviously don't do a reanastomosis of the bronchial arteries. So that is not getting a good blood supply. So all of our oral medications, like our oral antifungals, aren't getting delivered to that site. Mm-hmm. So I'm adding in my inhaled antifungals. If I'm seeing evidence of bacteria on washes, then I might be adding in things like inhaled tobramycin.
0: Are you taking any mucosal biopsies or is it just washings or BALs at that point?
1: Typically just washings. I feel like you get information from that without the risk of potentially doing sampling of the airway wall.
0: And let's say now a patient has progressed to dehiscence. How do you manage these patients differently?
1: So question for you, is the patient on the ventilator or are they spontaneous and like on or a little bit of oxygen?
0: Let's take both scenarios and let's discuss this in the presence or absence of a uh, BPF.
1: Okay. So if it is somebody who is on room air, um, or they're on one or two liters and I do a bronchoscopy and I see a small dehiscence, um, and it's quite small and they're not having symptoms. That's somebody that I may just do surveillance on and ensure that that is healing. So I'm going to make sure that they're nutritionally replete. I'm going to try to minimize, um, things that are going to irritate the airway, and I'm going to probably be conservative and do nothing. Um, If that dehiscence is larger, then I'm going to probably proceed with a stent placement. Um, And the choice of stent, um, this is like where transplant deviates from everything else we do in IP. Mm -hmm. So if I'm treating a large dehiscence um, and it's a symptomatic dehiscence, I'm actually trying to encourage Granulation tissue. Um, so, I'm actually trying to encourage the complication we want to typically avoid. So, I'm going to put in a fully uncovered bare metal stent.
0: And just to clarify, or so let's say, uh, so this is somebody who has a large dehiscence or has some symptoms. Uh, what if uh, they're really sick? You know, they're on a ventilator, they have a big uh, air leak on a chest tube, they're not a reoperative candidate or something like that. Uh, would you still put in an uncovered stent? Or would you, in that case, when you wanna really close the the hole quickly, would you put in a covered stent at that point?
1: So I think if you put in a covered stent, and this goes back to the the clinical scenario that you gave. Um, So the patient is not tolerating the air leak um, because obviously they have a large defect. And so in that patient, if you don't have surgical repair as an option, I think that unfortunately your hand sort of gets tied to you're gonna put in a covered stent because you need to seal the leak. Um, And so you would put in a covered stent. I would discourage that stent being a silicone stent. I just don't think they are safe to instrument these airways with. Um, But in those settings, if I'm trying to seal off a very large defect, um, I have in the past in that same situation, put in a fully covered stent.
0: Okay, so I'm gonna repeat what you said just to summarize and correct me if I say something wrong. So in someone who has just mucosal suffering and ulcer or a very small dehiscence, you're really just surveying these patients and making sure they have good airway clearance technique, you're watching for different infections and managing them from a holistic transplant perspective. But on yeah. the other hand, if the dehiscence is large, just symptomatic, then you need to do something about it. And if it's sort of an emergent intervention with a BPF or something like that, surgery is the treatment of choice, but if they're not a re-op candidate, then you put a covered stent, not silicone, a covered metal stent. But if it, they're not really symptomatic, as most patients would be, uh, there's a big defect, you need to address it, then you put in an uncovered stent to encourage granulation tissue formation.
1: Yeah, that's correct.
0: And then once you put this uncovered metal stent in, how often are you changing it and watching for the wall to be you know, formed again?
1: So I'm probably changing it depending on the patient's healing. So this, again, goes to the holistic transplant approach. So I'm optimizing their nutritional status. I'm looking at their steroids, looking at anything I can do to encourage that healing. And then I'm probably changing it every four to six weeks. So we know from malignant disease that when, when we put in partially covered stents, they embed and they epithelia is pretty soon. And so mm-hmm. we're trying to obviously get that to happen in the transplant airway, but not so much so that we can't get that stent back out. Um, and so I'm typically bronking these people um, every one to two weeks with that stent exchange every four to six. Mm-hmm.
0: All right. Let's talk about some of the complications we can see later. So let's say more than three months after transplantation, what complications are there and are they as common as the early complications?
1: Yeah, so later on in transplant, the ones that we see, I think still obviously have a clinical significance for our patients, but they are ones that are perhaps not as technically challenging to manage um, because you can imagine with a dehiscence and a large air leak, and positioning a stent over that defect. Those are a little bit more tedious and a little bit more risky, um, especially in the early post-op period. Later on, what we typically see is stenosis and that stenosis can be anything from just at the anastomosis to a vanishing BI syndrome to low bar and segmental airways. Um, or we can also see our patients get malacia um, at their anastomotic sites. So sort of that entire spectrum of things can happen later on.
0: So let's say we have somebody who has either malacia or stenosis, I guess the management of this depends on whether they're symptomatic or not, right?
1: Right. So I think the management of malacia and transplant is the same as other benign entities. So if they're not having symptoms, the last thing I wanna do is commit that person to a stent.
0: And if you do decide to stent uh, a stenosis that needs recurrent endoscopic intervention or somebody with Malaysia, uh, your choice of stenting in someone with tra- uh, lung transplant is?
1: So it depends on the location. So mm-hmm. if the patient is, let's say we've only got a stenosis at the anastomotic site or we're only dealing with Malaysia at the the anastomotic site. I feel like those are a little bit more straightforward in terms of the answer to stent. And so that answer is gonna be that I'm going to try to put in a silicone stent and that stent may be modified a little bit to fit the patient's anatomy, but that's Mm -hmm. gonna be my first choice. If I can't make that work, then I may consider putting in a fully covered metal stent, but that is if I don't have a silicone as an option. Obviously, Silicone for small airways is not an option. Um, And I think the thing that differs with the transplant community um, and those of us who do these benign airway interventions is that we might stent a segmental or a low bar airway that, and somebody with a malignant airway obstruction, we would not be doing big interventions on.
0: And when you do decide to do a low bar stent or a segmental stent, how do you decide between an Aero Mini or a iCast?
1: Yeah. So it depends on the size. So oftentimes the arrow, many that eight millimeters is going to be a little bit bigger than what I would like to put in. And so I find that I tend to use in small segmental and potentially even low bar airways, I'm using the six and seven millimeter eye cast, and then potentially just doing a slight post dilation.
0: And anybody, uh, anybody who has um, developed say a vanished BI or any other form of stenosis, is there anything else that you do from a transplant perspective to sort of minimize recurrence? Let's say it's a vanishing BI, you just make a small radial cut, balloon dilate, uh, and you're serving this patient for recurrence at that point. What can you do to sort of minimize this? Is, is there something with immunosuppression, You know, reflux management, or how, how do you manage these patients from a transplant perspective?
1: So there are a couple of different options. So I have seen patients who've developed sort of this vanishing BI syndrome related to poorly controlled. Controlled reflux. And so we obviously do a very robust evaluation of these patients pre transplant, but it's not uncommon for our patients to have esophageal dysfunction. So, getting adequate control of reflux, um, a lot of post operative Nissans. Um, so, if somebody who's three months post transplant, they're doing well, then we're going to send them to our surgical colleagues for reflux therapies. Um, the other thing that we can do from a transplant immunosuppression standpoint is actually change our medications. So there's one medication that we should never use early in the post-transplant period. um, And that is the mTOR medications like serolimus and everolimus. And so we know that those can cause devastating airway issues with big dehiscence because they affect our patient's wound healing. But in the later transplant period when patients have healed, and what we're seeing is stenosis, those potentially can delay sort of the time to recurrence similar to like the data for mitomycin. Um, so obviously it's not perfect. It's not gonna make the airway complication go away, but maybe somebody who's getting bronched every six weeks can now get bronched every three months.
0: So in somebody who you do decide to stent and let's say you put a silicone stent, is it the same as with non-transplant patients wherein, you know, at the end of 18 months or so, you hope that the airway has remodeled and, you know, you want to keep taking the stent out to see if they can tolerate life without the stent.
1: Yeah. And I will say when I was actually a transplant fellow, I looked at the data and in our interventional pulmonary group of patients that they had intervened on in the transplant program. And the patients they had done interventions on for Malaysia, essentially none of them had their stents removed. The airways don't remodel, Mm -hmm. but the patients that had stenosis, they had a pretty good success rate of stenting and then being able to remove the stent. So very much in my patients with Malaysia, I counsel them that like, if we can do weight loss and if they have sleep apnea, do those things and do a stent trial and try to pull the stent if we can at six months and see how they're feeling because oftentimes they've recovered enough from their transplant that maybe their respiratory reserve is going to allow them to have the stent out. But I typically tell them that the likelihood of them being stent free is low. With the stenosis patients, I'm more optimistic that they're going to have some remodeling of their airway and I'm going to actually be able to pull that out.
0: Have you had transplant patients who um, undergo a, a tracheoplasty pexy, sorry, a bronchoplasty plexy, uh, for Malaysia.
1: No, um, it's usually pretty focal in our patients, so it's usually right at that anastomotic site. And I think okay. the one thing that's interesting in transplant patients is that if we're talking about, let's take it to dynamic airway collapse. So if we look at patients who have EDAC pre-transplant. Um, just the transplant itself can actually correct the EDAC. So those patients don't need those big surgical interventions, the same way that our patients don't need a heart lung transplant for their right heart failure. The right heart will remodel with time. We see that with the airways as well. Um, so what we often end up having is very, very focal malacia. Um, and I think surgeons are appropriately hesitant to re at that anastomotic site.
0: This is fantastic. Um- have we missed out on any complication that you would like to add on?
1: Um, I think those are the main ones. Obviously our patients get interventions that other patients who are in the ICU for long periods of time have. And so our patients are gonna have post trait complications that I feel mm-hmm. like we manage the same as we do with all of our other tracheal issues after tracheostomy or after prolonged intubation. Um, The one thing that is obviously unique to transplant when we talk about the trachea is transplant patients who undergo a heart lung transplant are actually going to have a tracheal anastomosis. And so we may be seeing airway complications like everything I've just discussed. Um, but in the trachea, um, so it requires a little bit more consideration of the therapies that we're using, because once again, we're going back to central airway and trachea, not discussing like a main stem or a low bar airway.
0: This has been fantastic, Laura. I just have one last question for you. So w- what's the pathophysiology or why do some people get stenosis and some people get malaysia? What's going on?
1: <laughs> um I wish that we knew with certainty what this was related to. I've obviously worked with multiple different surgeons at multiple different centers, and I would love to say that there's one thing in particular that they do in the OR that decreases their incidence, or one thing that we do in our periop management that decreases the incidence. Um, but I think what we're learning is that it's a combination of factors. So we look at donor issues like donor smoking, um, how we actually procure the organs and that can impact things, things directly within the operation itself and then our post-op management. Um, So there are so many little things that are potentially modifiable, but we just have not identified all of them yet.
0: There's a lot to learn and I have learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn a lot listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you.